0: This is a
1: vital update about coronavirus. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. Good evening. The coronavirus is the biggest threat this country has faced for decades. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives.
2: Today, I can announce that for the first time in our history, the government is going to step in and help to pay people's wages.
1: Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives but we are hearing in the last few moments that the Prime Minister has been taken to hospital. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives.
3: Well, I'm sorry if people feel that there have
1: been failed. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. You
0: have I have a great, term. I have great love. For the- For all of the people from our country. But uh, as you know, China tried to say at one point, maybe this stuff now, that it was caused by American soldiers. That can't happen. It's not going to happen, not as long as I'm president. It comes from China.
1: Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives.
3: I can report through the government's ongoing monitoring and testing program that as of 9 a.m. today there have been 300,034, 974,000 tests carried out across the U.K.
1: Stay home, protect the NHS, save
0: lives. A lot of good things have come out about the hydroxy, a lot of good things have come out You'd be surprised at how many people are taking it, especially the frontline workers before you catch it. The frontline workers, many, many are taking it. I happen to be taking it. I happen to be taking it.
1: Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives.
2: The head of the World Health Organization has defended its handling of the coronavirus pandemic. The WHO has been sharply criticized by the United States and will be the subject of an independent inquiry.
1: Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives.
2: How did they come up with this number of six feet?
0: I think they just pulled it out of their rear end.
1: Stay home. Protect the NHS. Save lives. I'm protesting because our liberties have been taken away by a government under, under, under dodgy scientific data stay home protect the nhs save
0: lives and then i said supposing you brought the light inside the body you can which you can do either through the skin or uh, in some other way and i think you said you're going to test that too sounds interesting right and then i see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute one minute and is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or, or almost a cleaning because you see it gets on the lungs and it does a tremendous number of the lungs so it'd be interesting to check that so that you're gonna have to use medical doctors
1: stay home protect the nhs save lives
3: our headlines today a defiant response from downing street over new allegations that the prime minister's chief aide breached lockdown rules
1: to help save lives, stay at home.
3: In my opinion,
1: the rules are clear and they have always been clear. In my opinion, they are for the benefit of all. And in my opinion, they apply to all.
2: This is the fourth Take Orally special on COVID-19. In part one, I was joined by Dr. Andrew Lindsay, consultant in emergency medicine, to discuss the response to the pandemic and its impact on our department at the Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In the second episode, I sat down two metres apart with Dr. Colin Gilhooley, consultant in paediatric emergency medicine, and Dr. Sharna Shan, head smart fellow, to talk about children and young people with COVID-19 and the implications of this pandemic on paediatric services. In the third episode, I was joined over Zoom by Dr. Ben Rush, ST5 in public health medicine, to discuss the public health response to the pandemic and the road ahead. In this episode, I joined our favourite pharmacist, Canal Hill, over Zoom, to talk about vaccine development, the stages of drug production, compassionate use, and the search of a cure for COVID-19, in particular remdesivir and hydroxychloroquine. All information is correct at the time of recording. Any and all guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello, Canal. Doctor Thomas, good to see you mate. Good to see you. Um, we've podcasted in Annie's Burger Shack we've podcasted in Dream and now we're zooming.
3: We're zooming. This is uh, yeah, many many different types of communication. Just for pure like pure nostalgia, the computer is placed on the bar where we also record the quacks we quaff.
2: Excellent. <laughs> Excellent.
3: Just for, for continuity sake. Just for continuity sake. I
2: know, I know. Um, are you well?
3: I'm all right. I'm good. I'm good. It's been uh, it's been quite a few months, but mm. I'm well. Uh, family's okay and everything. So uh, yeah, I'm fortunate. You're good. well as well.
2: I am well. I was, uh, this Is it? I'm uh, keeping uh, following all guidelines. I'm not driving 264 miles. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not that I'm bitter uh, about that or anything. Um, <laughs> so uh, thank you for, for zooming in I feel that we should tell the listeners we, We're recording on a Thursday We were due to do this on a Tuesday yeah, uh, But we but couldn't that, do, that it. Why like can we do it on, Why couldn't we do it on Tuesday, Canal?
3: Yeah, so that was my wedding anniversary My third wedding anniversary And um, I told my wife, the lovely Bella That <laughs> I was going to do a podcast on that day That I would have literally been lynched So we had to reschedule for today
2: Oh, oh wow well. Did you have a nice anniversary?
3: A, we had a lovely anniversary on our own, um, sitting in the garden outside. It was very nice.
2: Good, good. And I hope she's well. She's a she works in uh, obstetrics and neonates, doesn't she? As a also yeah, as a pharmacist. Yeah, she's,
3: she's doing well. So fortunately, good. they haven't had crazy amounts of neonatal COVID cases. She says they've had a few, but the outcomes have been pretty good. Generally, I think, and moms um, are doing okay. Generally, they're expecting the Corona Boomer generation, though, in uh, November to December.
2: Wow. Mm. The Corona Boomer. People boom-
3: do at home when they got nothing to do. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, you heard it here first, people.
3: <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that'll be, uh, be sort of a whole different thing to deal with in November-December time.
2: That will be. That will be. Okay. Cool. <laughs> right then. Well, uh, we, we're not here to discuss for. Um, fertility um we're here to uh talk about um the search for a cure or a vaccine a treatment um for covid19 and yep. uh, think of nobody finer than yourself to come along and, and talk to us
3: yeah uh, yeah uh
2: so first up would you like to comment on injecting bleach
3: <laughs> i uh i stand by my previous tweets that i sent out uh and this is, this is interesting right so the th- first thing I thought when I saw Trump say that on TV is years ago when I was in ED we had a unfortunate gentleman that was a mental health guy yeah. who injected bleach into himself to try and kill himself and he didn't die but he did a number on himself 100% so someone try and inject bleach into their veins yeah, And it didn't end well at all. He was pretty damn debilitated
2: off the back of it. <laughs> uh, so I don't think we can ever,
3: ever, ever under any circumstance whatsoever recommend ingestion, let alone injection of bleach to treat anything whatsoever. Thank you. That's, uh, that's not a thing. <laughs>
2: Cool. Uh, that's that the only reason I needed to podcast with you, so we'll, we'll end it there then, Canal. Uh, yeah, I, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for, for zooming in.
3: Easiest 300 quid I've ever made. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: but hey, anyway, okay. So now we've parked that to one side, um, shall we talk then about vaccines?
3: Yeah, yeah, I think so. Because that... I suppose the background part of it will be there. So, like, this... This, I mean, the the word goes around a lot, but unprecedented is the only word that you can you can throw at this situation that we're in—a virus that's got this level of virulence, but also this level of um, of of outcome, poor outcomes for patients as well—is is not. I've never seen it in my lifetime, and people wouldn't have seen it in a lot of lifetimes. Really, you're talking about what Spanish flu, aren't you? Realistically, before something like this was, which was kind of before modern medicine was either, even a thing. So the amount of new evidence, because we've got great science and the amount of new evidence that's coming out on a daily basis is like nothing I've ever seen. So I remember our, our, our leader in chief, Frank Coffey, when I went on a course that he did about three years ago, he said, everything you learn is out of date, the best part of the day later. And that's a hundred percent true right now. So the, the game changes rapidly. And, mm. um, but the key thing we're looking at is obviously this there's the government's done the correct thing in terms of social distancing and thing like that eventually as we'll say and that's controlling the spread but realistically the the way that we get on top of this virus and we go back to what we'd consider the way we were before mm. is getting immunity to the virus so not having not not for it not having the ability to actually infect us and cause the symptoms and us not to be able to pass it on mm which is one really important, probably the key parts of the part of the puzzle. And the other part of the puzzle is us to be able to mitigate the symptoms and mitigate the mortality once people have got it. And so the two things there are a vaccine, which is the number one way will stop people um, developing the disease and spreading it quickly. It's the one way you obliterate the disease effectively. Uh, and then when people have got it, have we got a way to treat them to cure them, so therefore they can't go along and, um, and pass it on to anyone else as well, and our mortality rates get better because we're losing a lot more people than we than we usually do at this time of year. Um, so I suppose we start off with the first one, which is which is the vaccine. I've read a bit, but there really isn't a lot of actual science about the vaccine in the public domain at the moment. And I think you have to remember, with a vaccine, by definition, it's it's a drug, it's a medicinal product and its efficacy is determined over an extended period of time. So testing an antibiotic is not easy, but relatively easy, in that you can get an outcome measure after seven to 10 days treatment. A vaccine, you don't necessarily get efficacy, hard efficacy outcomes until you, you know, a year, 18 months, two years down the line. So it's very difficult to rush testing on vaccines you need people to build the immunity, they then have to be exposed to the vaccine, which is, da- uh, sorry, they need to be exposed to the virus, which is dangerous in its own right. Um, you're not naturally gonna inject someone with a vaccine and then expose them to the virus three weeks, three, four weeks later. That's that's an extremely dangerous thing to do. So I, I think, and, and most people in the medical community acknowledge a vaccine is not gonna be available massively quickly. They might well have developed things that can go into clinical trials and go into testing, which we'll discuss in a little while. But a vaccine's not something that can be rushed in the slightest.
2: How does, taking it to its most basic level then, how does a vaccine work? What's the idea of a vaccine?
3: Yeah, so the concept here is that, so in the, in the, well, I say the good old days, in the, the dark days, the way that immunity works is that when you're exposed to a disease or a pathogen, your body will fight it through its uh, innate immune response, and then you have what you call an adaptive immune response as well. And that adaptive immune response um, gives your immune system a memory. So if you then are exposed to that pathogen again in its original form, then you can fight it off much more quickly and much more efficiently to the point where you don't have any symptoms and you can't really spread it. It's eradicated in your own system beforehand. Now, the way traditionally that that happens is you're exposed to this disease. The old wives tale is that when you've got a kid who's got chicken and you want your kid to have chicken so they've had it and they don't get it again, you take them round and they have little chicken parties. We don't advocate that, by the way, <laughs> but that's, that's the classic wives tale. I know when I'm working in community pharmacy, people say that. Um, But that is effectively a kind of inoculation to a certain extent. So you've been exposed to the disease. um, Your body will fight that disease through an innate immune response the first time. And then you'll have an adaptive immune response um, to that disease state. So if you're then exposed to it again, you'll develop antibodies, you'll be able to fight it off extremely quickly. And so it's not a problem for you. that's, a, that's an effective thing. There's a problem with that way, uh, that way of doing things. Number one, the disease that you need to be exposed to could kill you before you develop adaptive immunity. And number two, if it's particularly viruses, they'll change and mutate so quickly that by the time you get the same virus again, it would have mutated to a slightly different strain that your body's not used to so you don't actually develop immunity and that's that's the case of something like influenza Mm. where we have the seasonal flu jab Mm. so i guess all conditions where there's more than
2: all conditions where there's more than one virus like the common cold where it's hundreds so you can get a new one every year
3: yeah absolutely and and, and, you know uh, the coronavirus so when we talk about coronavirus there's loads of coronaviruses and one of them is just a typical cold that people will get and they'll shake off and then they'll probably get it again next year because it mutates and
1: yeah.
3: it, it's a common cold. It's almost like fighting the common cold. It's just the problem that this coronavirus has is it's got the same virulence as a common cold, but mm. it's so much more severe in its symptoms. Um, so go a little bit more a little bit more detail just about about immunity. So the way that I think of it, and I had to really think back to my old immunology notes from when I was at pharmacy school, which is, this is hard stuff. Um, is when you look at immunity you look at uh, what we call your innate immune response and your adaptive immune response Um, and this assumes that you're an immunocompetent person you don't have some sort of a disease state that um, compromises your immune system so things like hiv certain cancers lymphomas things like that Um, but if you're immunocompetent and you're exposed to a pathogen of some sort um, the first thing you'll do is you'll have an innate immune response to to fight off that that pathogen so it might be a virus it might be a bacteria it might be a parasite it might be whatever and the first your first line of defense is your external defenses so people always get yeah, the first line of defense is um is external so your skin classic classic um your first line of, in, of uh, innate immune response Pathogens can't penetrate your skin. It's designed to be unpenetrable. And this is why when you cut yourself or when you break the skin, that's when you're prone to infections and things like that. Um, if you think about anywhere that you have, you don't have skin, you typically have mucosal membranes. So your mouth, your eyes, your nose, your ears, all these sort of things ultimately will lead to a mucosal membrane. Mucosal membranes are covered in, typically they secrete mucus or they have some level of mucus, or they have secretions of some, sort, of some type which are, typically acidic so pathogens don't typically like acidic environments so that tends to break down that virus before it can even get into your systemic circulation Um, and they're full of um, they're full of um, proteolytic enzymes and things like that that'll actually kill pathogens before they can even get into circulation there's loads of different types of them Um, so that's your sort of first line of defense that that stops the, the the pathogen getting anywhere near you And right now we're supplementing that innate response with with PPE. So we're adding an extra layer of security so the virus can't even get to us. So that's your face masks, that's your gloves, that's your visors, which is what we're using when we see our COVID patients. Your then second line of defense in the innate immunity is once the pathogen, so the virus, the bacteria, the fungus, it's breached your um, it's breached your first line of defence, your skin or the mucosal membrane, and it's now in your tissue. It's in some of your systemic circulation or in, in part of your tissue, and this is where you get your um, innate systemic response to that to that virus particle or that pathogen. And this evol- this involves your neutrophils and macrophages and phagocytes, and these are non-specific white blood cells and immune mediators. So they don't, they don't know specifically what they're attacking, they just know that it, it don't look right. And they go at it and they macrophages and killer cells, they'll go and just eat this particle, digest it and spit out some inactive compounds. Um, and that will be your first line of defense systemically to, to take away some of those, those particles of pathogen. Um, the other side of that is your inflammatory system. So your inflammatory system works with your macrophages and your neutrophils and what that does is you get cytokines and the complement system that's activated when, um, when the body detects this foreign particle. Uh, and this is a problem for us as emergency department physicians because this can go overboard. Um, so what you get is cytokines in the area of infection. What they do is they, number one, they vasodilate your vessels, your capil- your um, arterioles and your capillaries. And typically, they make them more leaky. They make them um, the cell membranes go apart a little bit, so they're, they're leaky. The concept of that is that your body is trying to allow uh, more of the white blood cells and more of the immune mediators to leak out into your tissue where the pathogen is, so it can take care and fight the infection. So it's a, it's a natural immune response. Um, and the logic is you're getting more white blood cells there, you're getting more lymphocytes there, you're getting all your immune mediators because your your blood vessels become dilated and they're more leaky, so everything's getting out. Problem with us is if that gets a bit out of control, if the infection, uh, you can't get on top of it quickly, that vasodilation will drop your blood pressure and you'll lose intravascular um, volume and you'll end up with... With um, system ooh, you'll end up with hypovolemic shock syndrome, you'll end up with septic shock. So that's typically the mechanism behind how septic shock works. It's where you've got such a bad infection, your, uh, your, your, your blood vessels have opened up and you're losing fluid like crazy. The other part of the innate immune system, it will raise your body temperature typically. So homeostasis will mean your blood, your temperature goes up, you get a fever, bacteria or other pathogens that don't typically like high temperatures. Uh, and what they'll do is they'll stimulate um, your external innate immune system to, to shed. So you'll have a buildup of mucus, you'll cough because it's just physically mechanisms to try and get more of the particle out of you. Um, I remember we chatted about the sneeze, didn't we? Yeah. But you were very impressed by the sneeze mechanism. Yeah, so there's a theory. So the sneeze mechanism is a natural mechanism, so you're trying to shed pathogens that are in your upper respiratory tract but yeah
2: but then they use that virus because you because they they want to be in the droplets that you send out
3: absolutely so there's a theory i don't think it's actually been proven but there's a theory that viruses and bacteria have evolved to be irritant to the to the nose and mm. the sinus mm. to actually stimulate animals and humans to make a sneeze because actually you you throw it out into the environment and you're more likely to get another host so particularly for viruses
2: that makes sense as a natural selection that's it so uh so yeah that's innate
3: immunity so this that is a non-specific response so it's just going to go at anything pretty much so people uh, typically people that have autoimmune conditions um or have terribly bad hay fever or other inflammatory conditions that's their innate immune system getting out of whack uh, because it's so non-specific, so it's important. Because what if you're fighting a virus or um, or something you've never been exposed to before, you're not going to have any kind of memory response. So you're going to rely on your innate immune system to fight off whatever you've, um, whatever that is, and then you hope that the memory system will kick in quick enough to help you be more efficient. So you rely hard on your innate immune system. What you then have is what's called your adaptive immune system. Um, And this is your long memory type response. And this is typically associated with particular white blood cells, lymphocytes. Uh, And in particular, your T lymphocytes and your B lymphocytes. So T cells, B cells, they are the absolute key to long-term immunity. So what typically happens is any kind of pathogen will enter your system pathogens will also have an antigen. So some pathogens are antigens, but some antigens will be on pathogens. So an antigen is something that basically generates an antibody response. So when we talk adaptive immunity, we're in the world of antibodies. So T cells, B cells. And basically it's a complicated mechanism. In effect, what it does is a once a B cell is exposed to a, a an antigen, a virus particle or a pathogen. It'll eat that pathogen, break it down, and then part of the, the part of the antigen is expressed on the outside of the B cell. What that then does is it goes and talks to a, a T cell, different T cell, and it proliferates, and then you get more and more cells that have these um, little receptors on the outside of them that recognize the, the pathogen. Uh, and eventually they become plasma cells. So they differentiate into plasma cells and memory cells. Plasma cells just spit out antibodies. So they will literally throw out chemicals into the body that will tag a foreign particle, COVID for example, uh, for attack by your innate immune system and your, your killer T cells, some of your other T cells. And so you have an extremely targeted quick style response Um, if your body ever identifies that antigen again. So the B cells are very much linked to memory. They're all memory. And also they differentiate into plasma cells, which spit out antibodies and your antibodies just circulate. The T cells are a little bit different. They don't eat the the antigen, the, the pathogen themselves. They need to have that presented to them by a B cell or by some other antigen-presenting cell, so like a dendritic cell or or macrophage or something like that. Um, And they get exposed, so they can't physically interact with the antigen itself. They'll get presented it by a different immune cell. Once they're presented it, they split into three different types of T-cells, like a killer T-cell, which just goes out and kills stuff, Um, helper T-cells, which make the B-cells work quicker and proliferate quicker, um, and then you have your memory T cells, which proliferate when they see stuff again. So that is an incredibly whistle-stop tour of adaptive immunity, <laughs> and that is literally you can get a degree in what I just taught, what I just said.
2: Well done, Canal. Brilliant. In <laughs> seven
3: um. minutes. Um, but the key thing is, once you've got your B cells and your T cells that have expressed these antigens uh, and antibodies, they will tag the pathogen with those antibodies and they'll, your your immune system will get rid of them incredibly quickly. Cool. Now, we could break that also down into passive immunity and active immunity. So what we've just said is active immunity. <laughs> so that's where your body actually develops this, the B cell and the T cell response and the antibodies itself and can make them themselves. Um, sometimes we have to use passive immunity um, so what that is, is where we're introducing antibodies or a foreign uh, tagging agent into the subject. So what the concept is now, as you've probably heard in the news, you know, there's this concept about using um, patients who have had COVID using their plasma to treat other new COVID patients. Yeah. So the idea there is there's antibodies in their plasma. So you put that plasma into someone else and they're able to tag the COVID and be able to physically kill it off themselves. Um and the other way that we do passive immunity um, in ED is classically immunoglobulin. So if we've got somebody who you know, we think might have tetanus or is very worrying to have tetanus, um, we'll give them a vaccine because we want them to have a memory response. But if we think they'll develop the symptoms before they even develop the memory response, then we have to give them passive immunity to protect them at that point in time. Yeah. So we give them immunoglobulin. And immunoglobulin is just antibodies stuck together. That's what it is. Um, so active and passive and really speaking you need active immunity to to be able to have a memory response passive immunity is only useful to you in uh, in the short term cool. so and those that t- is the only real way that you can develop immunity long term adaptive immunity
2: well done thank you canal um And those helper T-cells you talked about, those are the cells that, um, just as a matter of interest, they're the cells that uh, HIV infects and kills. That's right, CD4 cells. CD4 cells, which is why HIV, if untreated, leads to an acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, AIDS, because you take out that vital step. And so it's not the HIV that kills you, you get other infections that, that, that... Kill you. So we talked about vaccines and, and how they're probably going to be the the mainstay of, of of controlling this pandemic and getting life back to normal. But then mm-hmm. there's also been a lot of talk about cures and drug development. Um, yeah. Can we just touch on how drugs are developed, the the phases that they go through?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, so yeah, as we always say, in medicine, prevention is always better than a cure. Always, it's economically better and it's better for the patient typically. So I think vaccine is the number one thing for how we're gonna deal with COVID going forward. Um, but obviously you, you can't protect everybody and you need treatments. Um, so vaccines are drugs in their own right. So what I described before, a vaccine would have to go through the drug development process. Vaccines are always more difficult because they they give their efficacy over an extended period of time. So you need to wait an extended period of time before you can guarantee efficacy and safety. Um, drugs is a little bit diff- different, but the mechanisms are so much more different than vaccines that it can be more difficult to, to develop them. Um, so drug development is actually really interesting. We, again, just plug in the quacks quaff. We did, uh, we did our serendipity podcast on uh, quacks quaff about drug discovery. Um, so typically, the way these days drugs are discovered is actually a very, it's, you know, a multi-billion dollar um, enterprise developing a drug, and it can take years. You you can take anywhere from five to 15, 20 years to develop a, a drug and, and bring it to market. So the first stage of drug discovery or drug development is, is the discovery of the drug. You need an agent um, that does something. And typically what a, a drug company will say is, we're looking to treat a condition, um, SARS COVID-19 maybe, Uh, And we're looking for an agent that has activity um, in this, a novel agent. And there's a couple of ways you can do it. You can look at novel compounds that you have access to. So just chemicals, you can purchase like thousands, tens of thousands of unique chemicals. And what you effectively do would take that chemical, put it into a test tube that's got COVID in it, and you'll measure its effect on COVID. Um, that's a very blunt approach to dealing with things but that will give you x amount of compounds that have some activity against the virus you'll then look at whether that um, compound can be isolated into something that you can put into a human um, and is safe and then you'll take that to um, to to a human discovery form that's one way that you can do it in the discovery process i think what happens more often now is um, they do this through a computational model. So there are very clever people that build um, electronic computer programs that model um, drugs in a computer and then test it against a receptor subtype or an enzyme subtype that they can derive through crystal... Um, crystal, crystal um, oh, what am I trying to say? Crystallisation, crystal X-ray stuff, where you can physically find the structure of, a, of an enzyme or a, or a receptor, and then in a computer model they can figure out if they fit together and what their what their structure activity relationship would be. Uh, it's called something called Qsar. Very clever stuff to do. And then once you've got a theoretical drug that has a theoretical activity against um, a receptor, then you can try and build that compound in real life, and then you try and take it into a physical dosage form. That tends to happen more often because that can just be done on a computer. It doesn't require any manpower. And the other way that drugs are discovered is serendipity. So it's where you just find stuff that just happens to work. And the, the classic example of that is penicillin, where it was he wasn't trying to discover it. It was just a serendipitous discovery that it had some activity against bacteria because these mold spores flew in. Um, and quite often when you've got a drug that's used for one thing, maybe it doesn't work for what you intended it to work for but you do in the trials you find that it works for something else that's typically how you discover a classic drugs um, Viagra being like
2: an still, I was going to say Sildenafil like yeah angina right. patients who whose angina wasn't necessarily better but they found a, a, <laughs> <laughs> a side effect they were quite pleased with game
3: changer man game changer that. game
2: changer I bet they made more money out of it being that way I bet than they did out of it <laughs> being an angina treatment
3: Definitely,
2: definitely.
3: <laughs> cool. Um, so, so, yeah, so that sort of encompasses your first phase. And the first phase of drug discovery is, is the discovery and synthesis phase. It's where you figure out, I've got something that I think might work for X. Mm. Um, I'm going to test it as best as I can. Mm. Uh, and then once I've tested it and I think I've got a winner, I'm going to see if I can actually, can I physically manufacture this on scale? And can I put it into a dosage form that I can put into a human? Sure. So that encompasses the first experimental modelling type stage of, of drug development,
2: and that's sometimes called phase zero, isn't it? The the preclinical. Yeah, phase zero. Exactly.
3: It's sort of the, the, the discovery.
2: Period. Pre pre human testing.
3: Yeah, pre human, pre human experimental testing, in vitro testing, in vitro testing. Mm. What you then move on to is what we call phase one, and phase one is your first um, your first in vivo testing, your first in person or animal testing. So typically, this can involve involve animals to look at the the safety profile of this drug once you've introduced it into a living system, but it can also occasionally be involved giving it doses to healthy volunteers, so people that aren't necessarily um, suffering from the condition you're trying to treat, they're just fit and well people, and you're looking at if this will harm them in some way. And you're looking here at a handful of people and maybe an extended amount of animals that they'll look for for a a period of time. Um, And what this does is it gives you an idea of what kind of dose you're looking for for an effect, um, depending on what you're looking at, what you're treating. And it gives you an idea of what the safety profile and what the adverse effect profile is. Uh, And it gives you very important information. Um, Some phase one trials just show people to drop their blood pressure so... Tragically, that it can't be used at all. So, quite a lot of drugs never even get past phase one. Uh, there's been a couple of, there's been a few cases over the years. I think there was one in a hospital in the UK where some people were in phase one trials and it caused a few anaphylaxis reactions or a couple of deaths off the back of it. So, it's uh, it's quite a dangerous part. Uh, but you find that they use very low doses and they'll tighter things up. Um, and it's very much just a proof of concept in vivo at mm. that point. Um, So you're looking at a a handful of people, literally maybe a dozen people, two dozen people. It's a very few people that comprises phase one. And you'll give them the drug, you'll follow them up, you'll monitor them for an extended period of time for how they've tolerated it. Uh, You know, has it messed up their renal functions? Has it messed up any of their blood counts? Those sort of things. Um, And that could last a year, two years, phase one, once you've done the appropriate follow-up. And then you move into phase two. And so phase two is when you're giving it to a larger number of people maybe anywhere between 100 maybe 200 300 people Um, and this is where you're starting to use it in patients that have the problem that you're trying to treat so this is the stage say with our theoretical covid drug we're starting to give this drug to people with covid uh, and we're comparing it to placebo or to other treatments that are available at that point
2: so you're doing a randomised um, controlled trial.
3: Absolutely. So wherever possible at phase two, you will try and do a randomised controlled study where you don't know what you're giving the patient, the patient doesn't know what you're giving them, uh, and you have a very, very key control group as well. That's the best, highest standard of evidence that you can that you can have. And you might find that in phase two, um, it'll be repeated in different areas, Though so typically they reserve that for phase three. Um, and then you'll do, a, you'll do a retrospective study looking at all of those as well. Uh, and at this point, you're now looking at more efficacy measures. So is this actually doing the job you're wanting it to do? Um, you're also still looking at your safety profile. You're looking at are people tolerating this? Is it causing any short-term or long-term consequences to them, the drug itself? Um, and you're looking at primary, mainly primary endpoints at this point. So um, cure rate of an infection, for example, defined by well, defined by lots of different things, but we'll come on to that. (laughs) So phase two, again, could last anywhere from a year to two years easily for phase two. You then will move into phase three, and phase three is similar to phase two, um, but you're gonna give it to even more people under more strict circumstances. So typically phase three is when when you're gonna go multi-center. you're gonna potentially go internationally, looking at this um, drug in a variety of different patient profiles. So maybe not just particular patients who have the condition, but you're old, you're young, you're people with other concomitant medical problems, uh, people of different ethnicities, people of different genders, people in different areas and geographical areas and things like that. Uh, and there'll be RCTs potentially in all these different areas. So you 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 know, you could have 5,000 5, people in a, in a phase three trial. <clears throat> and then you're going to tot up all those RCTs and do a meta-analysis of the efficacy of your drug. And at this point, you're looking at maybe secondary outcome measures. So you're looking at cure rate, yes. Maybe you're looking at time of hospitalization. Maybe you're looking at um, um, other outcome measures. So, so like, um, I, I don't even know what you would be looking at, but other outcome measures. <clears throat> and at that point, you've, you've got a lot of different RCTs and you've done a meta-analysis of all your RCTs and you have a very strong amount of evidence at that point. You know whether your drug is working or whether it's not working. <laughs> so phase three is kind of where you stop your testing, so to speak, your pre-clinical testing. Your, well, it's clinical testing, but your, when, you, when you say phase four, phase four isn't really a phase, that's where you're taking it to the regulator. So you're taking all your data that you've comprised over the discovery process, phase one, phase two, phase three, So you know all about the pharmacodynamics of the product, you know all about the pharmacokinetics, you know about its dosage form, its stability. You've done all that in the discovery process. You know it's safe, it's not causing any adverse consequences in the short or long term, which you figured out from your phase one and phase two. And you've got efficacy data that you've got from your phase two and phase three. And what you do is you take that lump of data and you give it to your regulator. So for us in the UK, that's the MHRA. Um, but the EU have the, the EMA, the European Medicines Agency, yeah, the EMA. And they, they have oversight of that regulation for, uh, for the whole of the EU. So technically, if you give your application to the EMA, they can approve your drug for the whole of the EU. Uh, if you just took it to the MHRA, they can only give you approval for the UK. The MHRA, what they will do is they'll look at all of your data and they'll send it out for comment from various experts, scientists, people that'll do very, very rigorous peer review. They'll go through your data with a fine tooth comb, and they'll decide whether they're gonna give you your product a license, Um, or it's not actually called a license, it's called a marketing authorization. So at that point, you're allowed, your drug has got a license to be used in a condition that you state it's allowed to be used for. So at this point, we'd say that our drug is now being able to be used for COVID-19. This particular strain in this particular presentation Um, and you can then say I've got my drug I can start treating patients with it but having a marketing authorization doesn't necessarily mean particularly in the UK that anybody can get your drug because it also needs to be nice technology appraised so there's lots of drugs out there particularly some cancer agents that Get a marketing authorization because they have efficacy, but because they're particularly expensive, or because they're um, inferior to existing products, Nice won't necessarily advocate that they can be used. So at that point, you have a drug with a with a license, but you can't actually theoretically get it um, to anybody. So you find that drug companies will always take the economics. Uh, and what they're specifically treating into account when they're developing a drug. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, this is sometimes some of the reason why you find that novel agents, antibiotics and things like that, aren't favoured versus longer term agents that you've got demonstrated efficacy for. So things like for blood pressure or things for um, uh, these sort of things. Um, but that's a bit of big pharma stuff there. <laughs> um, they've got their shareholders yeah. Um, once you've got the MHRA or your regulator to agree that your drug works and is safe uh, and you've got nice to say you can use my drug in the UK under the NHS for this condition as well then you move into what we call phase 5 clinical trials and that's what we call post surveillance trials so this is where the drug's actually being used for whatever the condition is being used for by patients but the restriction is that any adverse effects or any um, strange treatment effects when patients are treated with that drug have to be reported um, to the MHRA or the regulator, and that's done in the UK through the yellow cards.
2: So the yellow cards that you've got in your BNF, or or, that's an app, right. or as an app. Now there is it's now an app. Yeah, there's an app.
3: Do it through the app. It's much quicker. They get the, they get the data that much quicker. Um, so particularly for new medicines that are in their um, phase five clinical trial their surveillance any side effects we need to be reporting via the yellow card to the mhra and and really speaking any drug particularly when there's a serious reaction you should report it to the uh, to the mhra because it's good data ongoing um so a good example of post surveillance um, data would be um a drug called Rofecoxib which is a, is a COX-2 inhibitor, an anti-inflammatory. Um, it was on the market. It passed all its trials, had brilliant efficacy. It was a very good painkiller. Um, what they found during the post-marketing surveillance is, my God, a lot of people are going down with MIs on this drug. And what it was found, it was found to absolutely massively increase the risk of, um, uh, of MI and cardiac death uh, for patients that were taking it long term. And because of that, it was ultimately felt like its marketing authorization should be pulled. So that's, that's what you do. It's the extended period of time that you're looking for things. But you always balance efficacy against safety. And if the if the profile isn't correct or not favorable, then you won't be able to use the drug. Compassionate care also, sometimes it's called expanded use, expanded access. So it's, it's actually something that goes on a lot, um, particularly in the cancer hematology fields. Um, so I must say, I'm not massively, I don't deal with a lot of compassionate use cases, but you find in oncology and hematology, um, compassionate use is a massive area and basically it's it's the concept by which so we've already said in that drug development process um, through those trials maybe to, to the point where you're in phase two or phase three trials you've actually got a very good idea that a drug has good efficacy for a particular condition uh, and you've got a pretty damn good idea that its safety profile is very good you just haven't necessarily dotted the i's and crossed the t's and got all the regulations done and it's a very long process you know this is a 5 to 10 to 15 year process if you have a drug that is so useful uniquely for a condition um, that a patient has where they can't necessarily wait for that drug to come out to market then the company can agree to what we call compassionate use for it so it's basically a process by which a patient or a doctor for a patient can access an experimental drug or a drug that's not necessarily on market uh, or doesn't have an um, doesn't have an established evidence base for that particular condition. Um, they can obtain that for the patient uh, in a one-off circumstance, um, and typically to qualify for it, um, it has to be for a condition which that drug has got demonstrated efficacy that's agreed by the medical, the medics that are treating them. Um, There has to be an extenuating circumstance when the patient can't wait to be able to um, access that treatment. So they can't wait for a full marketing authorization to be given for that condition. Um, Maybe because they might die in the meantime. Um, They can't access the clinical trial because they're under some sort of exclusion criteria um and that there aren't any other treatments that are equally good available so classically you see this for novel cancer agents so cancer agents that are in clinical trials where there is a good amount of evidence and you have a patient who is not necessarily terminally unwell but could become terminally unwell where this drug has a very good chance of of curing them in the literature at that point if the Medics, the medic that's treating them agrees. Um, they can apply to the manufacturer of the drug company to access that medicine for this condition for that patient, and it's very much with the drug company whether they choose to give you the drug to be able to treat that patient. Because uh, the funding then also becomes a bit bit tricky. So we know now. Um, for COVID remdesivir is is one that's been authorized for compassionate use in particular COVID cases. So what that effectively is, is the the healthcare, the government um, is saying that this this group of patients as a batch, we're gonna allow them to access remdesivir even though we don't have established efficacy and safety, Um, but we're happy in this case because they don't have any other options and we think the harm is limited and the potential benefit is high to save their life, we're happy to 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 let them authorize this drug, even though it hasn't gone through the normal marketing authorization channels. Risks and benefits have to be explained to the patient, who must really have capacity as well to agree to the treatment um, before that they'll be able to before they'll be able to physically access it. And I don't know, to be honest with you, I don't know 100 if they have to sign waivers and things like that. I think there is documentation that needs to be filled out. That the drug company will insist on before they'll supply you the drug i don't know exactly what that looks like in real life um but you have to remember as well the whole point of the fact that you're using a drug that's not fully experimentally tested for that condition you can't necessarily give informed consent in that case yeah you can say you can say this is a drug we don't actually know that much about it we think it might help you these are the proposed safety things but we've only known this drug about this drug for three or five or 10 years, we don't know what's gonna happen in the long term. And it's on the patient and their clinician to explore the risk benefit if they think that that's reasonable. And so if you look at the COVID drug remdesivir, we actually know quite a lot about it. It's been around for quite a few years. There are safety problems with it, so liver impairment and things like this um, and hemopoietic disturbance. But actually we know it's pretty well tolerated from a safety point of view it's more questionable about the efficacy, but considering that there are very few other options and they'll also be receiving best supportive care alongside it, it's not replacing anything, then actually the threshold for us to give it is pretty reasonable. It becomes more of an economical issue.
2: Cool. So that then leads us on to, let's talk about remdesivir.
3: I think it was was originally so in the discovery process, they they were trying to target hep C for it um, alongside ribavirin. But I think they they found that it wasn't particularly effective against mm-hmm. hep C. But it did have some in vitro activity against um, Ebola and loads of other different subtypes of virus. So coronavirus was one of them, uh, hantavirus, thing. it had some things against as well. Mm quite a few different types of viruses it had some in vitro activity for back when it was the ebola scare a few years ago um, it was postulated to be to be a potential treatment option actively for ebola Um, i think the evidence for it for its use in ebola wasn't very good either i didn't didn't get a i don't think you got a license for it Um, so very much what we said before in the discovery process we have this covid and so the first thing you'll reach for in a, in a novel virus is you'll test stuff that you've got data for that are antivirals already. Uh, and it was known that this drug had activity against coronavirus. It wasn't necessarily known exactly how. Um, so they started putting doing more in vitro testing and doing some in vivo testing for patients with COVID. Um, it's, it's an interesting drug. It's, it's an IV drug, for a start, which is important. So realistically, you can only really give it to people who are hospitalised it doesn't really work as an outpatient drug as much. Um, it's got a very interesting no- mechanism of action. So it's, a, it's a, um, a nucleotide analog, so it's an adenosine subtype. So basically it's a, it's a little drug that, it's, it's a pro-drug. The pro-drug, you take it, it hits your liver. The, hip, the liver then um, spits out something that looks just like an adenosine nucleotide. And these are the things that are your building blocks of DNA. Um, so what it does is uh, that adenosine subtype nucleotide analog gets into your um, into your cells, and naturally the way that virus work, the way the reason that viruses are awful is they they hijack your own equipment in your cells to to replicate themselves. Um, what this drug does is it gets incorporated into the um, into the the viral RNA to replicate itself. Um, And the virus doesn't like that some random nucleotide that's in its own code and by having this one little random nucleotide uh, in its code um, its own enzymes can't replicate it It just stops its replication process Um, and that's been shown in vitro through that mechanism so it's a very clever very clever mechanism of action Um, the problem is that in vitro testing doesn't always translate to in vivo testing Uh, for a variety of reasons whether you can get the dose right whether you can get the drug to the target that you need it to get to um and there's been a lot of papers so there's been the best part of five six papers over the last three months So a massive amount of um small papers and um, i think the most recent one was in the lancet for remdesivir um and i think similar to the other ones it didn't really show to have any effect on mortality as an outcome measure um and I think it didn't even have a statistically significant effect on um, time to improvement. It, it had like a non-significant... Did it have like a non-significant
2: basically, improvement? Basically, yeah, there, there was a shortage of length of stay, but not statistically significant. Statistical significance basically means is this effect that has been proven statistically not to have occurred by chance. Um, but yeah. then this improvement that was there is basically statistically no different to chance. Um yeah. So, yeah, and as you've said, no, no real improvement in mortality either.
3: Yeah, and you, you have to remember, so, so I think based on that, so th- there's nothing in terms of mortality. Um, you have to remember that the, the population was, was relatively small. I think it was like 200-odd patients of memory serves, and that is a very small amount of patients to demonstrate statistical significance. So realistically, to, to a, an appropriately statistically-powered study for this you'd need thousands of patients really to be able to show what you to to get, to be able to show statistical significance for something like that. That being said, typically the the adverse effect profile, so the safety profile for the drug, it wasn't too bad. It did show that more patients experienced adverse effects who are in the remdesivir group. So there was potentially some harm that was done by the remdesivir over the control group. Um, But typically they were mild. There were nothing really that much to worry about. Um, so, you can understand off the back of this study, that's when the UK made their compassionate use um, for remdesivir um, allowed. Um, because there is some little bit of evidence there about statistical time to clinical improvement, and that's a big thing for us in hospitals not being overwhelmed. So, you can understand why the UK have gone for that. And also, we're generating more evidence at that point. If we're using the drug, we're able to look in our population is it making any more of a difference mm. um so there is very weak evidence that it's useful but it is a little bit of evidence and it's something at the moment
2: mm-hmm. and um so this this is being the subject as we've been talking about to look at larger studies to look at larger randomized control trials to see is, is there something because as we said this, That's right, yeah. this original study was small um you know was it underpowered and therefore you need a larger study to actually show the benefit and actually in larger studies we may find that it's actually better than we originally thought.
3: Yeah, absolutely or equally we might find it was worse we, we don't know. Well, absolutely,
2: let's not be biased here, absolutely um, you know, let's not be biased here.
3: We can't force evidence so we're in a situation where we can't mm-hmm. force evidence, we we have to wait till there's enough patients who have sure. treated with it to be able to determine what the effect is Sure. Um, so we can only do the best with what we've got for the time being. And I think it's, from my point of view, it's not unreasonable that we're using it in this way at the moment.
2: Sure. So um, the one of the first drugs that got some traction, um, helped in no small part by uh, Donald Trump, uh, is uh, hydroxychloroquine. He's, he's recently announced that he himself is taking it. Yeah. Um, well. I've re- I received uh some emails today showing how hydroxychloroquine is being pulled from studies uh yeah. due to its uh danger uh causing yeah. increased mortality and, and arrhythmias. Um yeah. so hydroxychloroquine plus minus zithromycin. Uh yeah. do you want to talk us through that?
3: Yeah, so It's it's a difficult one. So I must admit, when I first started reading about hydroxychloroquine as an antiviral, it confused the hell out of me because, Mm. I mean, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, so they're similar drugs. So hydroxychloroquine is um, um, not a pro-drug, but it's a metabolite of chloroquine that's less toxic. So typically when we talk chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, they're, they're kind of synonymous in terms of their efficacy. Um, so typically now it's pretty much exclusively reserved as an anti- it's, it's a, r- a, r- a rheumatology drug. So it's an anti-rheumatic, it's an anti-inflammatory, uh, and if anything, it's an immunosuppressant, immunomodulator. So naturally, when you think in your head, why, why am I giving an immunosuppressant to somebody who's got active infection? It doesn't necessarily compute. So it was all a bit a bit worrying. Um, mm. The mechanism of action is actually very clever, and it does make sense. Um, So hydroxychloroquine, it's got a particular effect on malaria. uh, And it it has its effect as an anti-inflammatory through um, denaturing inflammatory mediators that are created in cells. And the way it does it is by um, reducing the pH in lysosomes, which are little vesicles that bring stuff in and out of your cells. Um, So they're typically like a neutral pH in hydroxychloroquine when it gets in it drops that pH down to like four or five or something like that. Um, that's the same way that theoretically this virus gets into your cell through a lysosome. Uh, and it's, what it's been postulated is because you drop that pH so much, you denature the virus. Mm. So it acts as an absorption inhibitor of, of the virus. That's very theoretical, very theoretical, but that's, that's the postulated mechanism of action as, a, as an absorption thing. Sure. Now, when you compare and contrast hydro, so if if we look at the papers, so there've been quite a few papers of hydroxychloroquine. A few from the US, a few from China, uh, France. Pretty much all of them agree. Nothing from mortality. Number one, they're very small sample sizes. Mm. Um, you're talking like, and, and I mean, you're talking like fifty, sixty people at most, which mm-hmm. is a really small sample size. Um, nothing on mortality, really. Um, a little bit. Of talk about reduction in viral load, which is a bit of an interesting outcome measure um, because it's not necessarily correlated with clinical efficacy. So you can say that this drug drops someone's viral load by 50%. It doesn't really tell you much about if they're feeling better or if they're not out of hospital or anything like that. Um, Nothing in particular about reducing symptom times. So a few of them found some non-statistical stuff about it. Um, So really very little A few papers put it in combination with azithromycin, so hydroxychloroquine with azithromycin. Azithromycin actually made a lot of sense to me because we know we use azithromycin currently. It's an antibiotic, a macrolide, um, but we use it in COPD as a long-term treatment as an anti-inflammatory, a respiratory anti-inflammatory. It would make sense to me that that would do a job. but again, you, I haven't found much for it as a monotherapy agent. And even with the hydroxychloroquine with it, there's mm. not a lot to say that it has any hard yeah. outcomes on efficacy. Yeah. Um, now, the difference between hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir, they kind of have pretty similar evidence, if you think about it. Slightly different, but similar. They've got maybe a little bit of weak effect on helping with COVID, dropping the symptom duration or um, viral load. The reason hydroxychloroquine is now being pulled is because it's actually quite a toxic drug in its own right. Um, the doses that they're using of hydroxychloroquine to treat COVID are quite high. They're on the higher end of what we'd use for rheumatology conditions. But because it's an um, it's, it's a quinine de- derivative it starts to cause um, cardiac dysrhythmias, particularly QT prolongation. And we don't have a lot of long-term safety data about using hydroxychloroquine at this kind of dose on effects of the heart for long term. So actually, there have been reports of uh, of QT problems um, in the short and medium term for people who are treated with hydroxychloroquine. Um, It's known to cause eye problems, so known to deposit in the eye and cause... um, um, well, various different eye complaints and things like that. Uh, and it has got hemopoietic problems with them as well in terms of um, anemias and neutropenias and things like this. There's quite a lot of side effects off the back of it. Um, remdesivir, we know at the dose that we're using at, has got a reasonable safety profile um, from a buildup of evidence. Hydroxychloroquine, what we were talking about was the, the safety versus efficacy profile I think now we're starting to think that using it at the dose we need to use it to get any effect for COVID, the safety problems that we're giving for other um, other collateral damage really isn't necessarily acceptable now.
2: One of the initial papers, one of the main um, talked about papers is uh, from France, um, I'm going to say this wrong, Gautré et al., uh, mm. Philippe Gautré, uh uh, available online the twentieth of March this year, and, and this was a, this was a paper I think that that got a lot of traction in the state, um, and as well as what you've you've been talking about had, and there's a, there's a lesson in this as well about study design, whereby um, they gave um, hydroxychloroquine plus minus azithromycin um, to twenty six people, um, five of whom dropped out. Uh, three went to intensive care one died and one had to stop taking because of side effects Um, certainly three going to intensive care and one dying definitely failures somebody not able to tolerate a drug definitely a failure but when they came to write up the paper because they dropped out they didn't include them in their analysis and so therefore the negative effects were not included as they reported that this great result
3: that's right. It's, I mean, like we could. We, there's a lot of papers, and we could do a podcast just on that. Yeah, very easily. That some of the data in the papers is is very questionable, um, particularly around some of the demographics. So, you know, some of these trials we've talked about, some of them deal with 85 year old men, and some of them deal with 25 year old men. You can't necessarily compare those subpopulations equally. Um, we're living in a very interesting time because we need data quickly to be able to fight covid but the whole point of science the scientific process particularly around evaluation of evidence is that you take time to really dissect it your null hypothesis is what this person has written down is not necessarily right it's my standpoint to disagree with it i need to rip this thing apart until i 100 percent can't refute it that's how good medicine is done um so things are usually very, very um, stringently looked at through peer review. Lots of different peers um, looking at things, asking lots of questions, um, questioning assumptions, and things like this. Mm. We're in a situation now actually where we need data and papers out very quickly. You find a lot of these. The authors are not dumb. They're very, cl- they're very quick to say in their papers this indicates this, but larger numbers and more detailed studies is required. We don't have that data at the moment. So people have to be very careful taking some of these papers at face value because um, we're in a very interesting time. There's lots of data around. There's lots of people publishing it. The, the peer review that we're used to isn't necessarily going, isn't as stringent as it normally would be. And, you know, some of these drugs they're dangerous if used uh, at doses and irresponsibly. Uh, from my point of view, particularly when you get laymen, even though they're very powerful laymen, giving <laughs> medical advice to masses it is really slightly concerning to me. <laughs> uh, so if, you're, if you've got political figures or people who are not medically trained giving you advice about medicines, please don't take it at face value and consult your local healthcare professional.
2: Strong, strong, wise words to finish on there, I think, Canal. Definitely. Uh, thank you so much. That was a bit whistle-stop, uh, but I think we've we've managed to, to cover a lot there. Um, and um, I don't know, we'll maybe in the, the coming times, we'll be doing a few more of these as, as other drugs are available. Or, uh, or, no, or I mean, we didn't
3: even we didn't cover all the drugs. I mean, there's Kevix, there's Ribavirin, there's Interferon. There's lots of drugs that are all being thrown about. Those mm. two we've just done to highlight it because they're the ones in media. Mm. We might find in a month or two there's a, a really good paper that someone sat on for three months because they've really properly evaluated it mm. that shows drug X is is a is a game changer. You never know. Mm. So yeah, when that one comes out, maybe that. Maybe I'm brewing one back here now. It's, I'm just sitting on it. I'm just waiting to roll it out.
2: Oh, well, <laughs> include me. Remember me when you're making your millions.
3: I'm gonna call it Canalavir.
2: <laughs> of course you would.
3: I just hope people. I hope people stay safe. I hope people keep going. And uh, yeah, best of luck. Keep it going.
2: Cool. Thank you very much, Canal. Enjoy the rest of your evening.
3: Take it easy, matey.
2: Bye bye.